you have your Bible or your scripture journal, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 15. Gospel of Luke and chapter 15. We are going to, for the second week in a row, be in verses 11 through 32. We read them all last week. We're going to read them all again this week, okay? Luke 15, 11 32, uh, probably Jesus' most famous uh, parable. And as we conclude chapter 15 this week, we're going to take, put a pause on the Gospel of Luke um, for four weeks. And so uh, the next four weeks after today will be in our summer in the Psalms that we do every summer. And so make sure you bring your uh, Bibles for uh, those. And then the last Sunday of July, we'll jump back into Luke in 16.1. And for today, uh, we'll be in 15, 11 through 32. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Luke 15, start in verse 11. The Holy Spirit says, And he said, Jesus, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pod that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he arose and he came to his father. Uh, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked what this, these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. He was angry. He refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered to his father, look. These many years I have served you, I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths all of our hearts. A few weeks ago, when we uh, began our time in this chapter of Luke, uh, we considered some of 19th century European painter uh, Vincent van Gogh's painting, what they communicated about his views of the church and his place in it. And this time, I want to bring your attention to one of his contemporaries, um, who was also an artist, but of a different kind. This man was a writer of novels and short stories, and his name was Leo Tolstoy. Tolstoy may be a name some of you guys are familiar with. Uh, he authored many works. His most famous was War and Peace. Uh, 
um, and how much land does a man need. He's considered one of the greatest authors of all time. And he won multiple Nobel Peace Prizes for literature and even uh, the Nobel Peace Prize itself for uh, three times. Well, most agree that he was history's, perhaps one of history's greatest authors. Biographers also agree that he was an incredible narcissist as well. Tolstoy was not someone who was a Christian, and thus he didn't have, live a God-centered life, but was, uh, he seemed to fancy himself at the center of the universe. For Tolstoy, he was God. In his diary, he wrote this. He said, help, Father, come and dwell within me. You already dwell within me. You already are me. One historian wrote, there were times when Tolstoy seemed to think himself as God's brother, indeed his elder brother. He felt in his own soul immeasurable grandeur, he said, and that he was above the rest of humanity, saying, I must get used to the idea once and for all that I am an exceptional human being. Tolstoy once also wrote this. He said, read a work on literary characterization of genius today, and this awoke in me the conviction that I am a remarkable man, both as regards to capacity and eagerness to work. Listen to this. I have not yet met a single man who was morally as good as I. I do not remember an instance in my life when I was not attracted to what is good and was not ready to sacrifice anything for it. Now Tolstoy was a walking contradiction. He spoke of empathy, but he offered little. He spoke of celibacy, but allowed himself frequent visits to the brothel, as well as fathering 13 children. He spoke of personal, uh, purposeful poverty and self-denial while he allowed himself to be a wealthy nobleman. He talked of happy families and their importance, yet his wife felt as if she was nothing more to him than a household piece of furniture, and he left his family when he was 82 years old. Tolstoy was someone who was confident in his own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. He was someone who believed other people should live in a way that he was unwilling to do. He desired grace for himself but was unwilling to give it to others. And when we hear someone say something of, about themselves like, I am an exceptional human being, and I haven't met anyone as good as I am, we are naturally repulsed, yes, by such candor. Who talks like that? And who esteems themselves so highly without realizing how deeply flawed and contradictory they are? I think when it comes down to it, the reason that such frankness, like boasting of moral superior, being a morally superior specimen, is so off-putting to us is because if we're being honest, we think those things to ourselves about ourselves. Now, maybe not such stark terms as Tolstoy, but don't we all have moments when we feel pretty good about something that we've done? Or how good we could be in comparison to others? You know, what's off-putting to us, then, is not so much that Tolstoy said those things about himself, it's that he said them out loud. This self-righteous posture that was so evident in Tolstoy may be more subtle in us, but it nonetheless is a posture that is inherent in all people. And it's exemplified in the elder brother in the parable that we call the prodigal son. You see, the older brother in this parable, he's not just as lost as the younger son was when he went far to the far-off country. The father has not one, but two sons who are lost and in need of his compassion to bring them back home, to turn them from servants to sons, to show them that their greatest need is not the father's stuff, but the father himself. 
As we noted last week, when we think about this, Jesus' most famous and longest parable, we think about the younger son being lost because he seems, yes, so obviously lost. He literally takes his inheritance, right, and goes to a long way off, and he blows it on all kinds of reckless living, whatever that means, before he realizes the heinous things he's done. Well, the older son, we give him little consideration because he doesn't seem quite as lost. But the fact is, he's just as lost, even if it doesn't, it's in a different way. Another way to say it is that the younger brother was estranged and rebellious while absent from the house, while the older brother was estranged and rebellious in his heart while he was in the house. We also noted that these two sons represent the two main ways people try to justify themselves, that they are the two ways people try to procure meaning and purpose and value. Either we try to justify ourselves through the pursuit of things, through the pursuit of pleasure and the things of earth, or through our deeds and our morality and our rule-keeping and religion. And while there are two postures, all have shades of both in their heart. But everyone favors one or other of those postures. You and I favor one of those two postures. In the elder brother, we have the upright, the good, the moral, the one who always does what he's supposed to do. He keeps the rules. He never gets into trouble. He's respected. He's well thought of in the community. He keeps his nose clean, so to speak, and is someone who does their religious duties. You know what this means, though, right? The brother, you and I, are most in danger of being like is the older brother. Let's remind ourselves of the context once more. The parable appears as the third in a string of parables that all have to do with lostness and subsequent celebration when those who are lost are found. And Jesus tells this parable um, in response to the criticism from Pharisees and scribes in verse 2 that Jesus received that he ate with sinners. Jesus is attempting to show them that God seeks and saves that which is lost, that salvation comes by way of the grace of God seeking those out and that they should learn, the Pharisees should learn to adopt that posture and go themselves to seek the lost. If they think there are bad sinners in the world, which the Pharisees and scribes do, they should go get them, not shun them. That's what Jesus is trying to show them. Further, Jesus brilliantly places both sinners and Pharisees in this story, doesn't he? Of the younger sinners and the older Pharisees. Due to the Pharisees grumbling that Jesus eats and welcomes the repentant riffraff, they have placed themselves outside the party, you see? But see, even as they give Jesus constant fits, the Pharisees do, Jesus shows through this parable not only that the elder brother are just as lost as the younger brothers, but that Jesus wants them in the party too, doesn't he? Their being outside of it is because of their choice. N.T. Wright said, if the Pharisees insist on staying out of the party because it isn't the sort of thing they like, that's up to them. But it won't be because God doesn't love them just as well. I love the way Robert Capone put it. He said, grace is the celebration of life, relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. It is a floating cosmic bash shouting its way through the streets of the universe, flinging the sweetness of its cessations to every window, pounding every door in hilarity beyond all liking and happening until the prodigal son comes out at last and dances and the elder brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears. So through the elder brother in the parable, Jesus is showing the Pharisees, the scribes, and all those who would trust in their own goodness that they are lost too. But that God cares for them just the same, you see? 
So we pick up where we left off last week. The younger son is welcomed home by the father and restored to sonship. He's been forgiven. And the father has absorbed the cost of his son's recklessness. The father had thought him dead, but had rejoiced with a great rejoicing to see him alive, and thus restores him because of the compassion that he has within himself. Well, the older brother is where? Doing his duty, isn't he? He's out in the field, working. When he starts to get near to the house, he hears the commotion. It sounds like a party. At this point, he knows nothing of his brother's return and restoration. He doesn't know he's back, right? He doesn't know what the hubbub is about. So he beckons the servant over and he asks him what's going on. The servant now may be assuming that the older brother will receive this news very good, right? He says, your brother is back safe and sound, so your father has killed the fattened calf. But how does the older brother respond? He takes it the way that the Pharisees and other religious leaders are taking Jesus' welcoming repentant ragamuffins, right? He's angry and he pouts and he refuses to go in the party. Now the irony Throughout the rest of our time together, it's going to be very thick, okay, for the rest of this parable. Let's start with this. The older son believes his brother to be disrespectful to his father and unworthy of being received, let alone received with a lavish party. Yes, that's his problem. And let's be honest, he's kind of got a point. But the older son in this context, you understand, where hospitality was of utmost importance, he was expected to co-host a party like this with his father where the whole village was coming together. What he's doing with his refusal to go in is he is humiliating his father publicly and he's disrespecting him like his younger brother did in demanding his inheritance earlier in the story. The so-called obedient son is being disobedient here by refusing to go in even after his father comes out and entreats him. He is publicly shaming his father as his brother publicly shamed his father previously. You see the irony here? Right after disobeying and disrespecting his dad, he says, I've never disobeyed your command. He's showing with his bad temper that he has had no more real respect for his father than his brother had had. On top of all that, the first thing he says, what's the first thing he says to his dad? When his dad comes out and entreats him, he says, look. He doesn't address him as father anywhere. The first words out of his petulant mouth is, look. Now, if somebody went up to you and the first word out of their face was, look, would you be concluding, you know what, this person really respects me? No, you'd be thinking, the, you'd be thinking this person is setting themselves up as a superior or self-appointed instructor, right? If the first thing they said to you was, look. But what the older brother shows us is how those who believe themselves to be good and moral, and righteous, and upright, and religious, see themselves in relation to God and to others. The older brother grounds his justification in his deeds. He believes himself to be someone who has merited only good things, especially in relation to others who th he thinks are worse than him. So the self-righteous posture both rest their salvation in their goodness and deeds, and thus, inevitably, this causes them to look down on others who they think aren't so pious as them. So one of the most glaring things about how the elder brother views himself is as a servant rather than a son. Did you notice that? How does he see himself? As a servant rather than a son. His fundamental identity seems to be that he is someone who has labored for his father 
has obeyed his father, even if it was in a sort of mechanical way. In other words, he doesn't serve out of love for his father. He serves out of a sense of duty in order to get what he thinks he has earned from his father. Like his brother at the beginning of the story, the older son does not want his father. He wants his father's stuff. He doesn't delight in his father. He delights in what his father can give him. So you could be someone, do you realize this, who talks of love for God. You could do things for God. You could sing about God. You could come to church and do your religious duties and can still be someone whose heart is far from him. Even proximity, as we see later with Judas, does not automatically mean one has real transformative love for God. As God said through the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are what? Far from me. See, and here's one of the keys of being an older brother. (laughs) You serve God out of duty and not delight. You serve God out of duty and not delight. It's not enjoyment of God. It's a sense of duty. It's not wanting to know Jesus and enjoy his person. It's being able to be good in order to receive some sort of compensation for doing what you think you're supposed to do. But when you serve God out of a sense of duty, you're serving because you feel obligated. You're serving because that's just what a good Christian does, or you're serving so that others can see you're serving. But that's not the same as serving God because you take delight in God for himself, is it? It's the same with worship, isn't it? If if we come to church because we feel like that's what we're supposed to do, and then we go through the motions and mouth words that are detached from a heart of worship, and then listen to some fella talk about what the Bible says without having a heart open to be struck by the words of God, we may leave feeling like we've done our religious duty, but what has really been accomplished? Is God honored through begrudging or mechanical duty or heartless worship? Is God honored in that? Dale Ralph Davis says it this way. He says, the sad news is that the church pew can still be the far country. What could be more tedious, boring, dead, dull, and damning than having all the motions of religion and evidence of morality without an enjoyable relation with God? The illustration I like to use when talking about duty versus delight is one you've heard before, uh, likely. Um, I borrow it from John Piper. I can't think of one better. He talks about a wedding anniversary. You guys, some of you guys remember this. Um, he says, suppose I, it's me and my wife's wedding anniversary, I come home, instead of walking through the front door, I ring the doorbell, my wife answers, I pull out 50 long-stemmed roses, and she says, they're beautiful, why did you go to such an expense? Say, in response to this, I hold up my hand matter-of-factly and I say, no need to thank me, ma'am, it is my duty, I read it in a book, this is what husbands do. Is that the wrong answer? What's wrong with it? Is not the exercise of duty a noble thing? Do we not honor those who dutifully serve? Not much, right? Not if there's no heart in it. Dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms, right? If I'm not moved by spontaneous affection for my wife as a person, the roses don't honor her, they belittle her. Okay, now let's rewind. Same picture. 
It's our anniversary. I go up to the door. I ring the doorbell. She answers the door. I hand her 50 long stem roses. She hugs me and thanks me and says, they're beautiful. Why'd you go through such an expense? And this time I say, I couldn't help it. In fact, I've got a plan for this evening. I want you to go put on something nice. We're going to go out because there's nothing I'd rather do than spend the evening with you. It would make me very happy. Which one honors my wife? Duty or delight? Do you see? What honors God? Is God honored when I obey him begrudgingly? Is God honored when I do what I think I should do, but that's abstracted from the pleasure of knowing and being known by him? You know, here's the thing about the older son. He has a point, doesn't he? (laughs) I mean, he's right. He did obey. Did he not? He did stay. He did do his duty. In fact, when we see him in this story, he's out doing his duty. All of it's true and right and good. The problem was he saw himself as a servant and not a son. He didn't see himself as a son who loves and delights in pleasing his father through that obedience. He sees himself as a servant, does his duty. Because, well, that's just what a dutiful son does. You can see this even in the few words he speaks. He says, all these years I served you. (laughs) Do you see it? I didn't disobey your commands. And then he refers to his brother as what? This son of yours, rather than his brother. He sees himself as his father's servant, not his son. When he thinks of himself in this way, he lives as one who does mechanical duty abstracted from love of his father's person. This is a posture. Do you realize this? It's so easy for religious people to slip into this. And it's so deceptive and easy because you could do the right things for the wrong reasons. You can serve and give and go to church and be a good citizen. You can be a good husband or wife. You can be a good child. You can be a good neighbor. You can be respected and well thought of. You can be generous and a volunteer, really sincere in all of that, and still be lost and outside the party. And we get down to the motivation for all that. It may very well be because you're just trying to be a good guy or gal or Christian. Or this is just what you're supposed to do, right? And missing in all of it is a love for and delight in God as a loving father. Serving him because you should and not because you take pleasure in his person. If you ask someone, if you were just to go out and do an experiment, if you were to ask every person you ran into, if they're a Christian, a lot of answers would sound like this. Yes, I'm doing my best. It's hard work, but I'm trying. Yeah, I do what I can to be good. If you get those answers at the most basic level, you know they do not understand the gospel. They believe that to be a Christian is fundamentally about who they are and what they can do rather than who God is and what Christ has done. Should you try hard to obey? Of course, but if obedience is seen as work or if obedience is seen as what your acceptance by God is grounded in, then you've missed it. If obedience is something you wished you could avoid, then you've missed it. More and more as you grow as a Christian, you should see obedience as something you desire because you delight in the one doing the commanding. 
You should see sin killing as something you desire because sin separates you from he who you love in and rejoice in. And this would still be true even when it's difficult. Do you see? Because here's the other related thing that's going on with the elder brother in relation to obedience with his father. Okay, you ready? The older son believes that he has merited or earned good things from his father. He believes that he has merited or earned good things from his father. He has worked in order to receive what he believes his work has produced from his father. In other words, his relationship with his father is one that is based on reciprocity. I do this, and if I do this, then you must in return do that. This is the primary way that people try to save and justify themselves. Whether religious or irreligious, all people, see if you agree with me on this, all people believe themselves to have earned or merited good things. Is that true or not? So set on this self-justification are we that we believe that we've even merited heaven. But we tend to think that entrance into heaven is determined on whether or not our good scales can outweigh our bad scales. And of course, almost everyone thinks that their good scales will tip in their favor. Truly, again, if you went and asked almost anyone, religious or not, if they think they're going to heaven when they die, the majority of people would say yes. And you know where they would ground that in? Because they believe themselves a good person who is sincere and tries real hard and has good motives. They believe that their so-called good karma has outweighed their bad. They've tipped the scale in their favor. And every other religion might say this is how you merit your way into heaven. But the gospel says that no amount of scale tipping can give you the justification or righteousness you need to satisfy a holy and just God. Not only that, the gospel doesn't even have time for this scale-tipping endeavor. It just kicks the thing open. It just kicks it over. The gospel throws it out completely, this scale-tipping. This is why the older brother is so offended, right? Because his younger brother's acceptance by the father is inherently unfair. Again, he's got a point, doesn't he? It's unfair what is happening here. And you know what? He's right. It is unfair. That's called grace. Grace is always unfair, isn't it? Always. Because the only, listen, the only people who receive salvation are those who don't deserve it. This is the only ones who are saved. Dale Ralph Davis says again, there is something wild and outlandish about grace. It's sometimes hard to keep dignity intact when heaven throws parties and angels exchange high fives over a repentant sinner. See, just as those like the younger brother are trying to find wholeness, and purpose, and fulfillment in the pursuit of pleasure, abstracted from any sort of regulations. Those like the older brother are trying to find wholeness and justification in their goodness and their morality, or in their work, or their notoriety, or their impressiveness, or their record. Why do they think they're justified? Because they're doing it within the regulations. Do you see? What does the older brother say? I worked, I obeyed, and yet you have never given me so much as a goat so that I could party with my friends. He's saying, I have worked and obeyed, and you should have, I should have earned more than what you're giving me and what you're giving your other son. 
He says, you gave him a fatted calf. I never got a goat. You know, this is sort of like comparing a four-course meal to fast food. Yeah, he, you gave my brother filet mignon. You never even gave me a McChicken. What he's saying is, if anyone deserves a slaughtered calf and a party, it's who? Me. Why? Because look at everything I did. We do that too, don't we? This will always be a danger lurking for those who are very religious. So it will always be a danger for who? All of us. Which is why we need constant reminders of the gospel that says you deserve nothing, but God gives you everything, not because of you, but because of Jesus. If you, if you don't remember that, then yeah, you'll look at yourself in comparison to bad people and think you're doing pretty well, right? You'll think you are more moral and good and upright, that you have better ethics and priorities and deeds, and it isn't thus a far leap then to say, God owes me. God owes me a good and prosperous life. He owes me a picturesque family. He owes me a nice house and car. He owes me a good job and plenty of money. He owes me a clean bill of health. He owes me a lack of problems and suffering. He owes me heaven. And why? Because look at how good I am and how hard I try and how I'm not like those people out there. You see? Is this not one of the reasons trials and suffering surprise us when they befall us? It's why many people go through trials, come out the other side worse than they were before, with more bitterness and self-loathing and jealousy of others who have it better than them but don't deserve it like they do. We believe that doing our religious duty should pay off with good things. The trials come and we think, I don't deserve this. You ever thought that before? I have. I don't deserve this because look what I've done. That's good. So when we do go through trials, which are inevitable to all people living in a fallen world, we can become bitter because we deserve better. Do you see how this works? So what is all the work and morality? This, what, is, what is all the work and morality and goodness and religious duty for when it comes down to? And so God could pay us back. Haven't we justified ourselves? Sure, we say we aren't perfect, but we do more good than bad. Surely more than, more than people who do drugs or drink excessively or still or commit sins that aren't as respectable as my sins. Do you guys see how easy and insidious this is? Do you see it in your own heart? You see what else this does to our work for God, whether it's in our religious duties or in our simple being moral or good? It means we're doing those things in order to earn, which means that even things we think we're doing for God, we're doing for who? ourselves. We're doing them because we expect good in return. That means they aren't for God after all, are they? The older brother and the Pharisees say, I did all this stuff and I stayed in your house and I worked out in the field and I slaved and where's my goat? Where's my party? Where's my robe and ring and shoes? I did all these things and therefore you owe me. So the work was for them, not the Father, not for God. You therefore see God as useful, but not beautiful. You don't serve Him for Him, to get Him, to glorify Him, but because you think your service will pay off somehow, and therefore you are using God. You guys remember the story of the king and the carrot? Who's playing the hits today, okay? So if you haven't heard this, but it's it's an illustration I like to use 
from Charles Spurgeon, of course. Um, he kind of he said, you know, there was this old once upon a time there's this old kingdom, okay, and there was a gardener who grew carrots, and one day. He noticed as he was farming that uh, there was a carrot that was enormous. It was the biggest carrot he ever saw. Okay? Now, he loved the king, and so he went to the king, and he said, uh, My king, uh, I grow a garden. Uh, I grow carrots. This is the best carrot my garden will ever grow. I've never seen one like this. I never will see one like this again. Take this as a token of my love. Okay? Now, the king, he could discern his heart. And he could tell that the, the peasant loved the king for the king. He really wanted to just give him this carrot. And so the king was moved in heart, and he said, you know what? I own the land that's right next to you, and so I'm going to give you that land as a token of my love. Okay? Now, there's a nobleman who's in the court, and he's kind of standing off, and he's hearing all that. And he's thinking, if, if that's what you get for a stinking carrot, what will I get for something even better? So he went to his stall, and he said uh, he, he found the finest horse he ever uh, grew, if I could say it like that. And he brought the horse to the king, and he said, my king, this is the best horse in all the land. It's the best I've ever seen, best I ever will see. Now take this as a token of my love. And the king could discern his heart and said, thank you, and he dismissed him. And the, the nobleman's thinking, what in the world? Should I get something for this? And so the king saw this confusion on, the peasant, on his uh, nobleman's face, and he said, the gardener's gift was a gift indeed out of love. But you're just trying to make a profit. He gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. You guys see? The older brother syndrome causes us to be motivated to work and live for ourselves to such an extent that even work we think we're doing for God is just a way for us to get something we think he should give us in return. Such a relationship with God is cold and distant. It's transactional. It's impersonal. It's callous and complaining. It harbors bitterness. It thinks it's owed good things from the Father without having the Father. This is why the elder brother, you notice again, look, when he asks where his goat is, so that he can throw a party with who? Not his father. He wants his party, he wants his goat, but he doesn't want his father. He wants his stuff, but not him. The beginning of getting out of elder brother posture is to finally come to grips with what we're truly owed from God. And then being able to see that we can never justify ourselves even on, with the best religious duty or morally scrupulous life. And this takes humility. It takes a humility that the older brother doesn't have, but his younger brother does, doesn't he? You know, Amir Christianity, C.S. Lewis said that what God wants is for people to know him. And he wants to give people himself. But he said, standing in our way is our pride and self-love. He said, we, we feel infinite relief if we get rid of the silly nonsense about our own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all of your life. He said, we have to take off silly, ugly, fancy dresses in which we have all got ourselves up and are stratted about in. We have to get rid of this false self we have created that we try to put before people and before God with all its look at me, and aren't I a good boy, and all its posing and posturing. To get even near it, Lewis said, even for a moment is like drink of cold water to a man in the desert. The younger brother, he was able to repent 
Why? Because he realized his need. You see? He knew he had nothing. He knew he deserved nothing. And he earned only a lonely life in a pig pen. It was then that he could say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son. But the older son, he wouldn't be caught dead talking about his unworthiness. His mantra is, I have never transgressed a command of yours. And for those who think this way, unworthiness will never be something they admit from the heart. But if he is going to be a son and not a servant, he must, like the younger brother that he despises, say, I am unworthy. Then he could be a son again. He must sense his need, for this is how the younger brother came to his senses. He realized he had nothing. He realized he was unworthy, and he was then welcomed back into the house as a son. Every one of us believe in our fallen hearts that we are owed good things. But until we come to a humbling realization that we are owed only separation, alienation, and wrath from God, can we begin to be welcomed into the party. Because then we will see we need the Father, and we need some of that unfair grace He gave to people who realize their own need and unworthiness. You see how the Father approaches His other wayward son? Remember how we talked about His running and receiving His younger son, how that would have been humiliating? Well, his leaving the party in front of all his guests to go and speak to his pouting older son would be just as embarrassing and humiliating as running down the street in his robe. So would the public disrespect of being spoken to the way his older son does. Once again, the father does what? He takes on the humiliation of his sons. Kenneth Bailey says this is important. He says, because it is in public, this rebellion of the older son is more serious than the early rebellion of the prodigal. Everyone in the banquet hall tenses expectantly, awaiting the father's reaction. They assume the older son will be punished immediately or ignored until the guests are gone and then dealt with harshly. And he says, for the second time in the same day, the father's response is incredible. Once again, he demonstrates a willingness to endure shame and self-emptying love in order to reconcile. It is almost impossible to convey the shock that must have reverberated through the banquet hall when the father deliberately left his guests, humiliated himself before all, and went out in the courtyard to try to reconcile his older son. Do you see? The father does not go out so he could get into a shouting match with his older son. He didn't think, I'll show him by dressing him down or demanding he go inside or smack his face for the disrespect, disobedience, and public humiliation. The father bypasses, yes, the omission of a title, the bitterness, the arrogance, the insult, the distortion of fact, and the unjust accusation. There is no judgment, there's no criticism, no rejection, only an outpouring of love. See, the older son, no less than the younger, is the object of his father's unfathomable love. This is the heart of the father. He loves the wayward. He goes, get some. He entreats them to come in, and he takes on their humiliation in the process. But unless we can come to the point where we say, I am unworthy, we'll stay outside of the party. Here's what will make all the difference in the world. Once you see your unworthiness and come to the Father and admit sin and weakness and need, he will turn you from a servant to a son or daughter. 
in everything we've talked about today, this has been the breakdown. If you see yourself as a servant, like the older son does, then you will work for acceptance. You will work in order for God to accept you because of your goodness and deeds. If you see yourself as a servant, you will work and expect repayment. You will work in order to get something, not to get the father, but to get his stuff because you think you've earned it. But see, if you are brought in by the father with nothing to commend yourself but lostness, nothing to commend yourself to him but need, then you will become a son or daughter and your obedience and your work and your deeds, they will be from acceptance rather than for acceptance. They'll be because you love God and you want to please him, even as you know that your relationship with him is not contingent on your obedience. And in that is freedom and joy and wholeness. You know, what's incredible about all this is we forget that Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees right? and to the scribes who just critiqued him for loving and accepting sinners. They know, they're no dummies, they know they're the older brother in the story. Right? That, that could hardly be missed. But do you see what Jesus is saying to them? He's saying to these guys who incessantly critique him, are constantly uncharitable to him, always assume and apply nefarious motives to him, and will, in the end, have him killed, that he loves them. And he wants them to come into the kingdom. He's saying, you are loved by God even though you're trying to use him. You are loved by God even though you're far from him. You are loved by God even though you are self-inflated windbags. You are loved by God even as you disrespect him from outside, just outside his house. And so if you want to stay outside the party, you could do that. But God is inviting you in. God loves younger brothers who blow their inheritance on reckless living and end up in pig pens, doesn't he? God loves older brothers who do their religious duty even as their heart is far from him. He wants them both to come in and then they'll have a party. But if they're on the outside, it's because it's what they have chosen. This is a reminder that every single person needs justification from outside of themselves. That whether you are someone trying to find purpose and meaning and value and wholeness by pursuing pleasure with all of your might, or you are a person who's very religious and moral and respected, you need the gospel just the same. No more, no less. The ground, as they say, is level at the foot of the cross. Do you see your need? Do you see his love and tender mercy? No matter who you are, this parable has something to say to you doesn't it? So what happens? How does the story end? Does the elder brother come to his senses and go into the party? Does he apologize and seek forgiveness? Does he see his disrespect to his father and that he is just as lost as his younger brother was? What does it say? It doesn't, does it? It's completely open-ended. Why? Because the question isn't, what did the older brother do? The question is, what will you do? You, you know something else that's interesting about this parable? Have you ever thought about this? You know, we said repeatedly that this is the third of parables uh, that will have the same basic theme and point and tone, right? In all three, something is lost. Right? It goes from 99 to 10, to, or from 100 to, 90, to, to, two, to 10 to 2, right? A sheep is lost. 
A coin is lost. Now sons are lost. But you know, in the first two, someone goes out looking. Right? The sheep, shepherd goes and looks. Someone looked, the woman looked diligently in her house for the coin. But in this parable, you notice no one goes out and looks. The father goes out, but he doesn't search. Why is that? You know, it's because in this context, the older brother, his responsibility would have been to go out and look for his younger brother. That was his duty. But did he? No, he didn't. He failed. He was was to be his brother's keeper. But he failed because he turned out to be lost from the inside of the house while his brother was lost on the outside of the house. You know, Edmund Clowney might be a name familiar to you, but when he would teach this parable, he told this story, which is a true story. He said a U.S. soldier had gone missing in action during Vietnam, and when the family could get no word from him through any of the official channels, the older brother who was in the United States got on a plane and he flew to Vietnam so that he could look for his brother. He risked his comfort, his life, to search the jungles of Vietnam to find his lost brother. It said that despite the danger, he was never hurt. Because both sides had heard about his dedication and they respected his quest so they didn't hurt him. That's what the older brother should have done. But he didn't. He resented his brother and was angry that he left and he took his inheritance and shamed the family and humiliated them in front of the community. The younger brother needed an elder brother who would go out and look for him and bring him home even if it cost him and he didn't get that. But we do. See, Jesus is the elder brother that's missing from the story. He's the one left out of the parable who went to go and seek wandering sinners and Pharisees too, though he, through his showing up in the flesh. But he didn't just leave a house or a flock. He left heaven to come and search. He is the one who has come to earth to seek and save those that are lost. He ran down, as it were, in humiliation to absorb the cost of wayward rebels. He was chose to be stripped of robe and ring and shoes so that he could hang naked and alone to absorb the wrath of both sinners and the self-righteous. Jesus actually obeyed in the way that the elder brother only thought he had. And he obeyed the Father from a heart set on love for God and for people with true and pure motivations and delight in the Father. He did all of that to turn wayward rebels and the self-righteous into sons and daughters. To invite them into the party. To throw a bash where heaven itself rejoices. To ultimately bring us into the banquet at the end of the age with only riffraff who have been adopted by God purely because of his hounding, lavish grace and abundant mercy. And so the story ends with no resolution because we need to fill in the details by responding properly. It's not about how the elder brother responded or what the Pharisees and scribes thought of these three parables. It's about you and what you will do with being confronted by the grace and love of a forgiving father who absorbs the cost of both our sins and our supposed righteousness that are really filthy rags. So that we could be adopted in his family and relate to him as a loving father who we serve, worship, and live for simply because of the pleasure of delighting in his person. So whether you see yourself more in the younger brother or in the elder brother, the parable ends the way it does because the choice is yours. How will you respond? Will you keep trying to find life in things of earth? 
of being your own Lord, of pursuing pleasure and faux freedom? Will you keep trying to find life by being good and moral and upright and doing your religious duty, even if they are devoid of a heart from God? We keep trying to find wholeness in what you can do. We keep trying to justify yourself through deeds or even by casting off any constraints to your pursuit of so-called life. What will you do? Can I ask you this? Where are you trying to find real significance? Where are you trying to find real significance? Is it by being like the younger son or like the older son? Through pursuit of pleasure and things of things or through your religious deeds? Now, do you see that they're both empty? Salvation and wholeness can only be found by going to the Father because of the search of our true elder brother and saying, I am unworthy to be your child, either by working or by wandering. Please accept me based not on my work, but on the work of a better elder brother. If you do that, he will welcome you as sons or daughters and give you a place at the table while throwing a lavish party. 